When I was growing up, my uh, grandfather, he was a career firefighter. And I don't know if it was because of the stress of the job or what, but he loved to put together puzzles. Anybody like to put together puzzles? Yeah, my, my grandfather loved to do that. And as I was a kid, I would sit there and watch him. And he didn't do like the little small puzzles either. It was like the 5,000 piece puzzles and the 10,000 piece puzzles that took up a whole dining room table. They were massive. And I would sit there and I would watch him. And he, he began to allow me to start to, to help him. And he taught me that there's some pieces in a puzzle that are a little bit more important than others. You've got the corner pieces, you've got the edge pieces, and when you have those, it really starts to bring into, into uh, fruition what the, the true picture is supposed to look like. And, uh, you know, I've noticed through the years that Christianity, for a lot of people, is sort of like putting together a puzzle. Some people, they're like, you know what, I'm going to grab some pieces of this puzzle and some pieces from this puzzle over here and some from over here. I'm going to try to put them all together into a, a puzzle of my own choosing, a, a picture of what I want the church to look like, what I want Jesus to look like, what I want Christianity to look like. Then there's other people that for them, Christianity is like a hundred piece puzzle. You know, it just all fits in the place really neatly and just, they like Jesus, they like the church, they like everything and it, it's just right there. It just falls into place for them. There's others of you that you want it to all fall into place. You want to know what the big picture looks like. But you have this sneaky suspicion that there's a couple pieces that are missing. You're trying to put it together, but you're like, there's some key pieces that it, I just don't know what that big picture is supposed to look like. Then there's others of you that Christianity is more like this puzzle that I, I bought it's actually the world's most difficult jigsaw puzzle. I know it's the world's most difficult jigsaw puzzle because it says right here, the world's most difficult <laughs> jigsaw puzzle. It's actually a picture of Dalmatians, all black and white Dalmatians. There's hundreds of them in that picture. And it's the original double-sided puzzle with the same artwork on both sides. 529 pieces in this puzzle. It feels like 4,000 pieces to put together. Again, I know that because it says it right here <laughs> on the box. I haven't put this thing together. I'm not that dumb. And let me read the back to you. It says, what makes this so difficult? It says, the world's most difficult puzzle is double-sided. It has the same picture on both sides, just offset 90 degrees from each other. Having the same picture on both sides makes any puzzle hard, but there's more to the story. Jigsaw puzzles are cut in a press, stamped out like dough cut with a biscuit cutter. This makes a groove into the top of the puzzle and leaves the bottom flat. Any smart puzzle worker would easily pick up on this and be able to tell immediately which side is which, except that... This is no ordinary jigsaw puzzle. How do I know that? Because they said it right there on the box. We cut this puzzle once from each side, cutting the vertical locks from the front, then flipping the puzzle over and cutting the horizontal locks from the back. There is no way to tell which side is which. Each puzzle must be compared on both sides for size, shape, color, and fit. This is very important. If the pieces don't fit perfectly, you've got it wrong. If all this sounds confusing, just wait until you try it. That sounds pretty overwhelming to me. And for many people, this is Christianity. You, you take a look at the, something like the Bible, and you go, that's a big book. It looks confusing. There's a lot of rules in the Bible. I don't know that I want to do that. And so instead of trying any of it, you just say, like I did with that puzzle, I'm just not even 
going to try. And so what I want to talk to you about here on this Easter Sunday morning, 2018, is one piece of the puzzle that if you have this one single piece, it'll bring the whole picture together for you. In fact, what we're going to read from the Apostle Paul is that if you don't have this one particular piece, you might as well throw the rest of it all out. So if you have a Bible this morning, you want to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. That's in the New Testament of the Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, you can turn there. If you don't have a Bible, that's fine. All the scriptures from today are on your outline that you received when you came in. They'll also be on the screen for you here this morning. And if you have a smartphone, you want to download the Version app. Again, Version. Download that app. You can actually get all the scriptures on there as well. Now, as you're uh, continuing to turn to 1 Corinthians 15, let me give you a little bit of context of what we're going to look at here today. This is going to be written by the Apostle Paul. Now, here's what you need to understand about Paul. Paul, when Jesus was first, you know, he was, he was executed, he was crucified on the cross, he was buried, he rose again from the dead, and then the church started. Paul hated Christians. He hated them because Paul was a good Jewish boy. And, and Jesus had come along and he had sort of wrecked the whole Jewish system. And Paul hated that. So Paul's job was essentially this, to round up the Christians and then to execute them. Now, how many of you have heard of Paul before? You're going, wait a second, isn't Paul like the most famous Christian of all time? How do you go from being somebody that's killing Christians to the most famous Christian that there is? And the answer is simply this, Paul one day had an encounter with the resurrected Jesus. He had been told that all oh, this Jesus, he, he died and he came back to life. And Paul's like, no, 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 that just doesn't happen. There is no way. And so he's killing Christians. But then he meets Jesus and everything changes for him. Paul gives up his life to make sure that as many people as possible, every man, woman, boy, and girl on the face of the earth could know that Jesus died on the cross and he rose again from the dead so that our sins might be forgiven. Paul starts to travel all over the then known world and he's starting new churches. And what would happen is from time to time, Paul would write letters back to some of those churches that he had started just to sort of encourage them in their faith and give them some instruction of here's some next steps that you need to be taking. And what we're going to read today is one of those letters, just an excerpt of one of those letters that he wrote to the church that he had started in the city of Corinth. Corinth is in modern-day Greece. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, here's what we read in verse 1. Paul says, Let me now remind you, dear brothers and sisters, of the good news that I preach to you. Now, what is the good news? Well, the good news is that Jesus died on the cross. Jesus rose again from the dead so that our sins might be forgiven. He says, let me remind you of the good news that I preached to you. Now, this reminder that he's giving to him is only 20 years after the actual event had taken place. Just 20 years after Jesus' resurrection, Paul's saying to him, hey, let me remind you what this book is really all about. Let me remind you of what the good news is, the gospel. Now, if Paul had to remind him just 20 years later, how much more do we need a reminder 2,000 years later of what the good news of this day, Easter, is really all about? 
Now, here's something else that you need to, to keep in mind. Paul was, again, personally transformed by the gospel, and Jesus had given him the instructions then of, here's what you need to teach and the, to preach. And so Paul continues on then in uh, verse 3, and he says, I passed on to you what I received, of which this was what? What does he say? This was most important. He says, this was the most important thing. In modern day terms, it'd be this way. I got on Google this week and I put in Christianity. It spit back 155 million results. And what Paul's basically saying here is, look, out of everything that's been preached, out of everything that's on Google, here is the most important thing. Now, that word important in the original Greek is the word protos. And protos means this, first, best, superior, nothing else comes close. In 1911, Ernest Rutherford, a scientist, he actually borrowed this Greek term when he discovered the, the nucleus of a cell. If you remember back to biology, the, the nucleus is the, at the center of all cellular life. And if you also remember back, the, the nucleus is made up of three parts. You've got neutrons, you've got electrons, and then he said there's the stable part of the cell, which is what? What do you think he named it? Proton, right. He, he got it right from this Greek word, the, the proton. It's the most important part. It's the stable part of it. And that's what Paul's saying here is that, look, I preached a lot of stuff to you, but here is the most important part. Don't forget this one particular part. And then he goes on in the rest of 1 Corinthians 15, and he basically tells the Easter story in three different parts in order to illustrate what is the most important part. So look at the second part of verse 3. So again, remember, he says, remember, here, here's the most important part, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. This is Friday. This is what we call Good Friday. This is the day that Jesus, he was arrested in the early morning hours. He's, he's uh, persecuted. He is tried. He is beaten and mocked and whipped and spit upon. And ultimately, he is nailed to a cross. And he dies. But Paul here in verse 3, he doesn't just tell us that Jesus died. He tells us the whole reason that Jesus died. What does it say here? He died for our sins. Now, you know, I've been a, a pastor for coming up on 20 years now. And one of the things that I've noticed through the years is that many people will admit that they're a sinner. Anybody here want to say that you've been perfect, you've never messed up? Any, anybody want to say you never messed up? So we would all acknowledge that we're sinners, right? But here's the problem. We don't acknowledge the, the depth and the magnitude of our sin. And you know why we don't understand the magnitude of our sin? It's because we can always find somebody out there that sins worse than we do. You're like, yeah, I've sinned, but you haven't seen my neighbor. <laughs> yeah, I've sinned, but did you hear what my coworker just said? Oh, yeah, yeah, I, I sin from time to time, but there are little small sins. My brother, my sister, my aunt, my uncle, you should see what they're into. We do very good at, at comparing ourselves to, to other people. And so we say, well, 
I'm basically a good person. You ever said that about yourself before? Yeah, I'm basically a good person. I hate to ruin it for you, but no, you're not. None of us are good. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But again, we don't understand just the the, the magnitude of who it is that we're sinning against and what we're doing to him. Let me illustrate it for you this way. If tomorrow after work, you're sort of frustrated with the day, and you go home and you kick a hole in the wall. You're not going to get arrested for that. It's stupid that you did it. But you're not going to get arrested for it. I mean, you lost your temper and you, you kicked the wall. Let's take it to the next level, though. Let's say tomorrow you get home and you dropkick your cat. Now, some of us... <laughs> would say glory to God. <laughs> but this is Easter, so I'm not going to go there. <laughs> if you kick your cat, that's more serious than kicking your wall. In fact, if somebody sees you do that, you could get into legal trouble for that. But let's take it a step further. Let's say you go home and you're frustrated and you kick your spouse. Now, you may be going, they deserved it, but (laughs) nobody actually deserves to be kicked. And again, if somebody sees you doing that, you could get in real legal trouble. You could be arrested for abuse. Let's take it a step further. You go home tomorrow and you kick your infant or your toddler That's even worse than kicking your spouse. And again, if if somebody sees you do that, you're going to get arrested. You're going to get sentenced for that. Now, regardless of what you think of the current president, just think of just presidents in general. If you kick the president, big trouble. Definitely getting arrested, definitely going to jail. Do you see how as we went through progressively, it became worse and worse and worse and worse, depending on who it was that you were kicking or what it was that you were kicking. Here's what you need to understand. Every single time you sin against God, you're kicking him. You're kicking a holy and righteous and perfect God. He says, I've got nothing but the best for you. I've got great plans for you, but yet you just keep kicking him over and over and over and over again. And what makes you think that if you can't get away with kicking an infant or you can't get away with kicking the president, that you're going to be able to get away with just kicking a holy God over and over and over. There are consequences for our actions. And the consequence is that we don't deserve eternal life with God forever in heaven because we just keep kicking him. But Paul reminds us here in this scripture that the whole reason that Jesus came was to die for our sins so that every time we kick God, that can be forgiven. He says, man, let let me remind you of this, that Jesus died for our sins. Then he continues on in the first part of verse 4. He says, and let me remind you that he was buried. 
This is Friday and Saturday that Jesus, he, he had been crucified on, on Friday. They take him down off the cross. They wash his body. They wrap him in grave clothes. They place him into a tomb. They, they put a, a stone in front of it. They seal it. And then they place Roman soldiers in front to guard it. This is Friday, Saturday, Jesus. And unfortunately, this is where many Americans have left Jesus, either hanging on the cross or still in the tomb. And you know why they do that? It's because Friday, Saturday, Jesus is safe. Friday, Saturday, Jesus is comfortable. We like Jesus. Oh, I love Jesus. I love his teachings. You know, I, I love the things that he stood for. I love that he died for his beliefs. We love that version of Jesus, Friday, Saturday Jesus. Because if he's dead, if he's still in the tomb, he can't ask anything of us. And I find it ironic that most Americans love the Friday, Saturday Jesus because what two nights of the week do most Americans live for? Friday and Saturday night. Where it's about what I want. What I'm going to do. And it doesn't matter what God wants. Again, Friday, Saturday Jesus is very, very comfortable. But Paul says, look, You've forgotten what's the most important thing, the protos, the thing that stands above every other thing. Second part of verse four, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. This is Sunday. This is Easter. This is why we're here today celebrating. This is the most important piece of the puzzle. Here's what I put on your outline. It's impossible to be a Christian and not fully embrace the resurrection. Again, it's impossible to be a Christian and not fully embrace the resurrection. Yet that's what so many people try to do. And how do they do that? Well, I put it on your outline this way. The temptation is to try to divorce the teachings of Jesus, Jesus, excuse me, from the resurrection of Jesus. Again, many people, they're like, oh, I love Jesus' teachings. You know, love your neighbor. Turn the other cheek. Be compassionate to people. Forgive one another. I love Jesus' teachings. But again, many people try to divorce the teachings of Jesus from the resurrection of Jesus. But you can't have it both ways. You just simply can't. Again, many people are like, I love what Jesus taught and the values that he stood for, but I just don't really believe this nonsense that he died and then he rose again from the dead. I mean, April Fool's. Right? Think back 2,000 years ago. Isn't that what you would have said? April Fool's, you know, that some guy rose again from the dead. It's crazy. But let me tell you why it's not crazy. Let me share with you some, some facts here this morning. By the way, 25% of all church-going people, not, not just Americans, but 25% of all church-going people don't believe in the resurrection. That's crazy. Let me share why you, that, with you why that's nonsense. 
verses 5 to 8, Paul says this. He, meaning Jesus, was seen by Peter, and then by the twelve, and then after that he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he was seen by James, and later by all the apostles. Last of all, I also saw him. You know, oftentimes we forget just how much we depend on the eyewitness accounts of others for the things that we believe. We forget how much we trust authorities to speak into our lives. In fact, some people have speculated that 95% of everything that you believe is because of the authority of someone else. I'll give you some examples. Most of you have never seen the solar system. You have never seen a nuclear particle. You have never seen the circulation of blood, but yet you believe those things because scientists who have seen it said, hey, this exists, it's real, and you believe it because of that. You believe it on somebody else's authority. Or how about this? 99.9999999999% of all human history, you didn't see. You didn't experience. You weren't there for the Civil War. You weren't there when Julius Caesar was reigning. But yet you believe it. Why? Because somebody wrote it down and you trust that authority. And that's what Paul is saying here. He says, look, don't take just my word for it. Take the 500 people that were eyewitnesses, that many of which are still alive that you could go interview right now. Take, take their word for it. In fact, I did the math on this. If you took 15 minutes just to interview each one of the 500 and you did this like 24 hours a day, you would start at Monday at breakfast and you wouldn't end until Friday at dinner time. That's a lot of people that you'd be interviewing. Don't you think if this was all just a hoax, if it was an April Fool's joke, one of them say, ha ha, April Fool's. We made it all up. But Paul says, look, this isn't something that happened in the, the far past. This is something that just happened a couple years ago. Go and talk to people. It'd be like today, somebody's going, 9-11 never happened. And what would we say? No, there's, there's a lot of people you can go and ask them, where were you when this happened? You could go to, to New York and, and see the site. And that's what Paul is saying here is, look, there's a lot of eyewitnesses that are still alive that you can go and talk to them. But you know, even better than just the eyewitness accounts, is something else. Chuck Colson, who was one of the central figures in the whole Watergate scandal with uh, Richard Nixon, he was eventually uh, sentenced to prison for his role in it. And he went to prison as an atheist. But Chuck Colson, while he was in prison, he started studying all kinds of philosophies and religions, and he was studying Christianity. And as he studied it, the, the more and more he studied it, the more and more he realized that, wait a second, this isn't just fairy tales that somebody made up. This is, this is the truth. There is actual historical facts that back this up. And so he came out as a Christian, and he went on, and he, he wrote some books about this. But I love this quote from him, and I, I put one there in your uh, outline, but I, I found it a little bit expanded one here. It's going to be on the screens for you. Chuck Colson says this, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, 
tortured, stoned, and put into prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. Now, I know your argument to this. Some of you would say, yeah, but people die for lies all the time. Think back again to 9-11. Terrorists flew planes into the side of buildings because they truly believed that what they were doing was for their God. And you're right. People die for their beliefs all the time. But I've said this before, and I'll continue to say it over and over and over again. Yes, people die for their beliefs, but no one will ever knowingly die for something they know to be a lie. Let me say that again. People die for their beliefs all the time, but no one will knowingly die for something they know is a lie. Does that make sense? I mean, you may lie about something for a while and and keep it going, but eventually if you start to get beaten and tortured and then executed for that, you're going to go, whoa, 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 whoa. No, we, we just made the whole thing up. And what Chuck Colson's saying here is, look, these guys endured this for years and years and years and years. They were told over and over and over again, stop preaching about Jesus. Stop saying that he rose again from the dead. Stop saying that he can forgive people of their sin. And they're like, no, no, no. We saw it with our very own eyes. And even if you kill us, we're just going to keep proclaiming it. They were eyewitnesses to this. Here's what's amazing. Out of the original 12 disciples, of course we know Judas went out and he hung himself out of guilt. But then out of the the other 11, 10 of them end up being martyred for their faith. Again, nobody will die for something they know is a lie, but yet 10 of the 12 die because of their belief that Jesus really had risen again from the dead. The 11th then, John, he was sentenced to life in prison for his belief that Jesus really did rise again from the dead. Paul, later here in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, look guys, would I be writing all this, putting my own life on the line if this weren't true? But yet, just a couple years after writing this, Paul was beheaded by Nero. Why? Because he says, I experienced the resurrected Jesus. He really is God. He really does have the power to forgive sin. And Paul gets beheaded. Verse 14. Paul says, if Christ has not been raised then all our preaching is useless and your faith is useless. Paul's saying, look, all the great things that I taught you, it's useless if Jesus hasn't really been raised from the dead. Now, let's think about some of the things that Paul taught. Just two chapters earlier in 1 Corinthians 13, the the one that we use at weddings all the time, you know, about love. Love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy, blah, 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 blah. It goes on and on. It's like, oh, that's so beautiful. Paul says, if Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead, throw it all out. It's useless. It's worthless. So is your faith. But I want you to notice here, 
that not only is he saying that if you, have to, if you cross out the resurrection that all the other teachings aren't true, but he says all our teaching, not all my teaching, he says all our teaching is useless. By the way, ignore the lights. This is Easter. This is to be expected, right? Satan doesn't, <laughs> Satan doesn't like what's going on. We never have these things, and it's always on Easter, so just ignore it. I shouldn't have said anything. <laughs> Satan, this isn't Friday. This is Sunday. And we're going to get the victory. Verse 15. He says, not only that, but what? What does he say? But not I, but we would be guilty of telling a string of bare-faced lies. Again, notice that word, we. He's saying not just my writings, but all the other writings would be just void and useless as well. Now, what do I mean by that? Again, many people say, I love Jesus. I love his teachings. I love what Jesus' values were. I love what he stood for. Well, guess what? 100% of what we know of the teachings of Jesus come from Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Peter, Paul, James, and Jude, the writers of the New Testament. And Paul is saying here, look, if Jesus hasn't really been resurrected, then all the writings of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, uh, James, Peter, Paul, Jude, they're bare-faced lies. Throw it all out. It's all useless. He says we're all liars. And none of the things that we said about Jesus is true if the resurrection isn't true. Again, you cannot divorce the resurrection from Je of Jesus from the teachings of Jesus. He can't be a good guy. He can't be a moral guy and, and just... Say, I love all that stuff. I love all the teachings, but we're just going to throw his resurrection out. No, it's a package deal. And then, you know, Paul ramps it up to another level. And he says in verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless and you are still guilty of your sins. Now, some of you are going, Gilbert, I don't believe that, that I'm still guilty of my sins because I believe that God is a loving God. I believe he's a forgiving God. Well, good, he is. But where did you learn that? Where did you learn that? You're going, well, my, my, my mom and dad taught me that. My grandma, my, my grandpa, they, they taught me that. Okay, well, where did they get it? Well, they got it from the Bible. Right, specifically the New Testament of the Bible. And keep in mind, the Bible is not a book. The Bible is a collection of writings from Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Peter, Paul, James, and Jude. So the reason you believe that God is a forgiving God is because these guys said that he is. And the only reason that they said he is is because they said he rose again from the dead. Again, you cannot divorce the teachings of Jesus from the resurrection of Jesus. 
Paul says either it's all true or none of it's true. And so here's our big thought for the day on your outline. The resurrection of Jesus is either the greatest lie given to humanity or the greatest event in history. There is no middle ground. If you think about it, Paul's really painting us into a corner here. But he wants us to realize what's at stake. And then he gives this sad truth in verse 18. Remember, he's just said that if, if there is no resurrection, we're still guilty of our sins. And he says, in that case, all who have died believing in Christ are lost. Now, this is a tough one for me because my father-in-law just passed away a couple months ago. Two years of battling through cancer. Not only was it, it tough during that time, but his loss was tough as well. But you know what gave us hope? What gave us hope was that Jesus really did rise again from the dead. That my father-in-law had a, a strong relationship with Jesus. And that Jesus, ultimately when he passed away, welcomed him home into heaven. And that one day we're going to get to see him again. But Paul says, look, if Jesus hasn't really been raised from the dead, then all those flowery thoughts of seeing your loved ones again, just flush them down the drain. Good news is, Jesus did rise again. Now you're thinking Paul's being really harsh here. He's being a little bit depressing, and he would actually agree. In verse 19, he says, If our hope in Christ is for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone else in the world. But then he gives one of the greatest statements in all of Scripture. Look at verse 20. He starts out by saying, But... He just gave all this other stuff about how our faith is useless and, and you're still in your sins and we should be pitied more than anyone else and that we're all lost and there's no hope for the future. But then he says, but. The fact is that Christ did actually rise from the dead and has become the first of millions who will come back to life again someday. And church, this is the message of Easter. This is everything. This brings us hope. But yet for many people it doesn't because they don't believe in the resurrection. Now why do some people not believe in the resurrection? Well, maybe some of you are here today and, and you're like Paul, at least Paul before he became a Christian. You hate Christians. You despise Christianity. Why? Because maybe a Christian or a church, they hurt you deeply in some way. And for that I want to say I'm sorry that that happened. However, don't allow an imperfect church and imperfect people to keep you from a perfect Jesus who died and rose again so that your sins could be forgiven. No one, no one is going to be perfect this side of heaven. And so again, don't allow imperfect people to keep you from a perfect God. For some of you, maybe you're more like Peter. Peter hurt Jesus in the most unimaginable way. And Peter thought, you know what? There is no possible way that, that Jesus would ever want to have anything to do with someone like me. I hurt him so bad. I kicked him over and over and over again. But guess what? Jesus ends up forgiving Peter. And he ends up using Peter to become a, a leader in the early church. 
we wouldn't be here today if it weren't for someone like Peter. And what I want to say to you is, I don't care what you've done in the past. I don't care how much you've hurt Jesus. I don't care how much you've kicked him. You are not beyond his forgiveness. He wants to forgive you. He wants to use you to make a difference for his kingdom. And so don't allow your your past to dictate your future. Somebody once said it this way. Never put a period where God has simply placed a comma. Let me say that again. Never place a period where God has placed a comma. You think that it's the end of the story. But God says, no, 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 no. That's just a pause in the story. I want to forgive you. And then I want your story to continue on. So if you're still breathing, God is not done with you yet. He wants to take your greatest failure and turn it into your greatest victory. Nothing, nothing you do will ever disqualify you from God's love and his forgiveness if you'll simply ask for it. Now, there's some of you that you don't relate to Paul, you don't relate to Peter. You actually relate more to James. Now, Thomas got the nickname for being the doubting one. But James could have easily have gotten this one. Now, this isn't the same James that was an apostle, one of the the 12 disciples. This is a different James. This James is actually the brother of Jesus. And for the three and a half years of Jesus' public ministry, we don't read anything about this James. He doesn't believe that Jesus is really God. He's not going to follow his brother. I mean, think about it. What would it take for your brother or sister to convince you that they're God? A lot, right? So we don't hear anything about James for three and a half years. But then all of a sudden, James not only becomes a follower of Jesus, but he becomes the leader, not like one of the leaders, the leader of the church in Jerusalem. What changed his mind? He saw his brother die, and then he saw his brother come back to life. He's like, bro. I'm sorry, I I didn't believe, but now I believe. I believe that you really are the Son of God. I I really do believe that that you died and, and rose again so that our sins could be forgiven. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you think that in that very moment that he saw Jesus alive, that all of his questions about Scripture got answered? No. He still had a lot of questions. But all he knew was this. He saw his brother die, and now he saw that his brother was alive. And he said, that is enough for me to follow this man. And I want to say the exact same thing to you. Somebody dies and rises again from the dead. That's somebody you should probably follow. If they say to do something or not to do something or to go a certain place, I wouldn't argue with it. It may not make sense to you, but I wouldn't argue with it because you're like, you know what? There's obviously something about life that they know that I don't. Because they were dead, but now they're alive again. And so some of you are here today, and you've got all kinds of doubts about the Bible. You know, what about Noah's Ark? And is it, you know, seven days of creation, literally, or figuratively? You've got all these questions. Forget about those questions. The most important question is this. Did Jesus really rise again from the dead or not? That's the only question that you have to answer. Forget about the rest of the Bible. Forget about everything else. Did he rise again or not? If he did, if the answer is yes, then you just follow him. 
That's it. Just follow him. Now, for all of us here today, let me say this. The reason we need to follow Jesus is because he can defeat the final enemy. And that enemy is death. Paul wraps up in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 54 to 57 by saying, The bodies we now have are weak and can die, but they will be changed into bodies that are eternal. Then the scriptures will come true. Death has lost the battle. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, all of us are still going to physically die someday. But just because you physically die doesn't mean that you have to spiritually die. You see, the good news of what this day is all about is that Jesus was God in the flesh and Jesus lived the perfect and sinless life that you could never live. And then he died on the cross. He shed his blood so that your sins could be forgiven. See, we're told that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. But if he didn't rise again from the dead, then he's just another nut job that died on a cross. So to prove that he truly was God, he he rises again from the dead, victorious over sin, victorious over death, victorious over hell. And that's what he's giving to you today, the offer of a brand new life. And listen, every good thing that's ever happened in your life happened because something changed. And today is the day that change must come for some of you. Today is the day to finally see that the missing piece of the puzzle, this, this thing that seemed like the world's most difficult puzzle, which you call the Bible, it's not difficult because there's one piece that if you have that piece, the resurrection, then you have every single thing that you need. And Paul says, if you throw out the resurrection, just burn up the whole book. It's useless. Your faith is futile. You're still in your sin. You're lost. But listen, don't just take my word for it. You study it for yourself as well. There's many, many convincing proofs that Jesus was a real historical figure who died on a cross and rose again from the dead. There's eyewitness accounts. There's all other types of things that you can study to see that this is the truth. The question is, are you just going to keep kicking him over and over and over again? Are you going to accept his forgiveness into your life? Let's pray this morning. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for... Uh, what this day signifies, the, the, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of your son Jesus on the cross. And Lord, I, I know that many people come into to church on a, on a Sunday morning like this on Easter, and they have all types of different backgrounds and different beliefs. Lord, I pray that this morning, through the, the power of your Spirit, we've seen that the only belief that really matters is, did Jesus rise again or not? And if he did, then we need to follow him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And if he didn't, then we we can just throw the whole thing away. All the teachings of Jesus and and all the good things that Jesus did, the miracles, we can just discount all those things. But Lord, I pray that your spirit right now is is just convicting and convincing of which way are we going to go? Is it true or is it not true? So with every head bowed, every eye closed here this morning, If you have never prayed and asked Jesus to forgive you of your sins, you've never asked him to come in and be the leader of your life, and and you've you've never said, Jesus, I want to follow you from this day forward. I don't understand it all, but I want to follow you from this day forward because I believe that you truly rose again from the dead. If you have never prayed,
prayed that and asked for his forgiveness and leadership with every head bowed, every eye closed. Just raise your hand up nice and high so I can see it. I'll acknowledge it, and then you can put it back down. Yes, back here in the back. Thank you, sir. Anybody else? Anybody else? Jesus, forgive me of my sins. Come into my life. Be the leader of my life. I want to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that if I were to die today, I would spend eternity with you in heaven. Yes, right here, sir. Thank you. Anybody else? Yep, right down here, man. Thank you. Anybody else? Jesus, forgive me. Cleanse me. Make me whole. Give me a fresh start. I believe in you. I believe in your resurrection. And I'm tired of just trying to do life my way. I want to follow you. Anybody else? Quickly, quickly, quickly. Anybody else? Anybody else? All right, I'm going to ask everyone to pray this prayer with me out loud. Dear Jesus, thank you for coming to the earth, living a perfect and sinless life, dying on the cross, shedding your blood so my sin might be forgiven. I believe that you rose again, victorious over death, victorious over the grave, victorious over even hell itself. And from this day forward, even when I don't understand everything, I'm going to follow you with all of my heart, with all of my soul, with all of my mind, and with all of my strength. Lead me, guide me, direct me in the ways that I should go. I'm turning from my sin and turning fully to you. Jesus, thank you for the three that have raised their hands here this morning and just the new life that you've given them. You, you said that at, at this very moment that the old person has died and, and that there's a new person and that your spirit now lives inside of them to help them in this new walk and journey that they're on. And Lord, for all of us, I, I pray that your spirit would just lead and guide and direct us in the ways that we should go. And, and Father, I would even include those that maybe aren't quite ready to make a decision for you. They're, they're still sort of kicking the tires on this whole thing called Christianity. God, if, if that's true, help them to be serious about what I talked about this morning, to, to study it for themselves and make an informed decision. Did Jesus really rise again or not? Help them not delay in, in making that decision because none of us know the day or the hour that death is coming for us. And it's at that moment of death that our eternal future is secure. Either we're going to be eternally present with you forever in heaven or eternally separated from you for all of eternity in a very real place called hell. So none of us want to take that gamble. And so help us to come to a firm conclusion as quickly as possible. Lord, help us as a, a church and as a people to come alongside those that maybe have some doubts and, and just help them and pray for them in any way that we possibly can. And again, Lord, for everybody that's here, I just pray that your spirit would continue to speak to us, whether we've been a Christian for 50 years or for the last five minutes or we're not even a Christian yet. Just continue to speak to us. Show us the ways that you'd have us to go. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, can we give those that made a decision this morning to follow Jesus a big hand? <laughs>